Well, friends, imagine a group of men in a fort that is under attack. And they are enduring wave after wave of attack from an enemy. The enemy is trying to scale the walls, batter down the doors, hurling explosives into the compound. But each attack is repulsed by the defenders within. And finally, there is silence as the attackers withdraw to lick their wounds. But suddenly the silence is broken as the doors of the fort open up and the former defenders burst out in full-scale attack against their former attackers. There's a sense in which that's what we see Jesus doing in the gospel account in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It is the final week of his life. He has come into the temple, and there he is in full view of his enemies and is an easy target for his enemies. And his enemies are taking advantage of that. Wave after wave of attack comes at the Lord Jesus. First, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court with their representatives, come and attack Jesus accusing him of not having the proper religious credentials. By what authority are you doing these things? You see, they saw Jesus as a threat because his popularity was drawing away the masses. And then the Pharisees team up with the Herodians, strange bedfellows, and they come to attack Jesus, asking him, should we pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? The Pharisees want to get him in trouble with his people, discredit him in the eyes of his followers, and the Herodians want to get him in trouble with the the Roman authorities. And then the Sadducees, that group of religious liberals, comes and they attack Jesus. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they're trying to hold up his teaching about the resurrection to shame and folly, making it look ridiculous. They were threatened because Jesus obviously believed things that they didn't believe. And then finally, the Pharisees make another attempt by sending a man who ends up being a sincere seeker. And he asks Jesus, what's the chief commandment in the law? One truth that I want to pause to illustrate here, as we see all these diverse enemies coming against Jesus, one truth it it says to us is that there are really only two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And as diverse as the children of Satan may be, as they are here, They're all united against one common foe, and that is Jesus. Only two kingdoms. And the kingdom of Satan, as divided as it is and chaotic as it is, will always stand united against the kingdom of God and the light of truth represented in Jesus. But as we have studied each one of these verbal attacks that are made against Jesus on this Tuesday before his death, we have seen that every one of those attacks withers in the face of the divine wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus extricates himself from every horn of every dilemma on which his enemies tried to impale him. He answers every question with superlative wisdom, and he is left above reproach. Every foe that tries to attack him is silenced, and they leave his presence defeated in their wicked designs. And Jesus is left occupying the field alone, his truth having triumphed over the error and the evil. 
But Jesus is not content to leave it there. He has parried every blow aimed at him, but now he's going to go on the gracious offensive. We've seen how he's been on the defensive, hasn't he? One group after another, challenging him with questions and and making him, putting him in a defensive posture. Now that they've all been silenced, Jesus is going to go on the offensive. But I call it a gracious offensive. Because unlike his enemies, Jesus' designs are not malicious. He's not out simply to win an argument. He's not out to wound or to harm or to kill. Even in going on the offensive, he intends good, even for his enemies, because that's who the Lord Jesus is. Our text is Mark 12, just a few verses, 35 to 37. Please turn there if you haven't already. Mark 12, beginning at verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Right at the outset, I want to make an application. I thought maybe I should reserve it for the end, but I'm going to give it now. Do you follow me when I say that Jesus, who has been on the defensive as these different attackers come to him, now goes on the offensive? They've been asking him questions. What about this, Jesus? What about this, Jesus? What about this? Now he's saying, I've got a question for you. He's going on the gracious offensive. And I think that very much applies to us in the age in which we are living We've been told that this is a pro-post-Christian society, and it's not hard to believe it, is it? I was sent by our brother, um, Steve Hollowood, a little podcast this past week, and this man had done some historical analysis, and he concluded that from 1964 to 1994, Christianity was viewed in a positive light. From 1994 to 2014, Christianity was neutral. And from 2014 to the present, Christianity has been viewed negatively. Not hard to believe that, is it? Christians are opposed in our day. You who hold biblical values, biblical ethics, biblical morals are often put on the defensive by others who are accusing you. We believe that there are but two genders, male and female, as God created them. We believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman. We believe that abortion is the the killing of a baby in the womb. We believe in male headship, not abuse, but godly, loving male leadership in the home and in the church. You believe those things today, and you are being accused of being a bigot, being a racist, being a homophobe denying people their rights. You're accused men of toxic masculinity, even if your leadership in the home and in the church is very loving and Christ-like and gracious. doesn't matter. It's toxic masculinity. And we are under attack in every direction. And my plea to us is to be like the Lord Jesus. 
Don't allow the world to rock you back on your heels and be in a defensive posture. We don't need to be apologetic of God's ways and God's word. We dare not be embarrassed by God's ways or apologize for God's ways. Follow the example of Jesus. And while we answer questions, we also go on the gracious offensive. And gracious is important. We need to have grace in our hearts toward those who disagree, worldly people, ungodly people with weird, unbiblical ideologies. We need to have grace in our hearts, love in our hearts, and then grace on our lips as we speak to them. But we also need to go on the offensive and tell them the truth of God, which they so desperately need. So don't be in a defensive posture. Don't be embarrassed about what God says, because we have the truth in God's word and in Jesus Christ. Let's go on the gracious offensive and bring to our godless generation the truth which alone can set them free. But now let's get into the text. And the first thing I want to consider is the context of Jesus' question. The question he then asks, Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, now he's going on the offensive. What's the context? Well, the context is he's constructively teaching in the temple. Jesus had come into the temple not to debate and not to argue. He came to teach. Back in chapter 11 and verse 27, when he was first interrupted, it says, they came, he and his disciples, to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. He was walking in the temple. And friends, he wasn't sightseeing in the temple. He was doing peripatetic teaching. He was walking around teaching this group and teaching that group. He didn't come to argue. He didn't come to debate. He came to teach. But his enemies interrupted his teaching with questions. And when the questions are over, he resumes his teaching, verse 38 of our text. In his teaching, he was saying, see, he came to constructively teach. And that was the part of the context of his question. But it's also the context of Jesus defensively answering his enemies. He's trying to teach positively, but his enemies keep interrupting him with questions. But even in dealing with his enemies, he's giving positive teaching. When the Sanhedrin comes to him, he teaches them a lesson about John the Baptist. When the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him jointly, he gives a rebuke to the zealots who won't pay the tax, and he gives a a veiled rebuke to the Herodians who were not rendering to God the things that are God's. When the Sadducees come to try to put him to shame in his teaching, he teaches them a positive lesson that They're ignorant because they don't know the scriptures. And so the context of the question is Jesus is trying to positively teach in the temple, but his enemies keep coming at him with questions and he's caused to defend himself. What about the content of Jesus' question? Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? That's Jesus' question to his enemies, the Pharisees and the scribes. And there are a couple of assumptions behind his question. The first assumption is that the scribes knew that the Christ was the son of David. 
You see what he says? How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes, who were the lawyers, the teachers of the people, Jesus assumes that they knew that the Christ who was coming was the son of David. Now, how did Jesus know that they knew that? Well, Jesus was often called the son of David by various people. A few chapters earlier, remember that the blind beggar is by the side of the road, really two blind beggars, and they're crying out, have mercy, or son of David, have mercy on me. They called him the son of David. The Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and, and she says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, the people and then later the children in the temple cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, how did the people who believed that Jesus might be the Christ, how did they associate the Christ with the son of David? Well, obviously the, the scribes had taught them that. And where did the scribes get it from, that the coming Christ, the coming Messiah was to be the son of David? Well, it goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, where God made a covenant with King David in Israel. And these were some of the words of the covenant. On the throne of David, let's see, I'm sorry, back up. God says to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises to King David that a descendant of his, a son of his is going to have a, an eternal kingdom. The prophets pick up on this. Isaiah 9, 7, familiar to us through Handel's Messiah. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. And so the Old Testament teaches that this coming Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be a king who descends from King David. And the people knew this because the scribes believed it and the scribes taught them this Messiah is going to be a, a son of David, a descendant of David. The second assumption Jesus makes is that the scribes recognized that Psalm 110 was an inspired Davidic and Messianic psalm. See, Jesus quotes to them Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus made the valid assumption that the scribes recognized that this psalm written by David was about the Messiah. It was a messianic psalm. And by the way, we might note that the Pharisees had a right view of inspiration. The Pharisees understood that David said that by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this gives us a hint as to Jesus' view of the scriptures. Jesus believed that when David penned that psalm, he did it by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus viewed the scriptures as God breathed. And I might ask you, how do you view the Bible? You the Bible? view the Bible as just a nice history book written by men? Or do you believe what the Bible claims to be for itself? The breathed out revelation from God. All scripture is God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. That's what Jesus believed, that what David, the, wrote, the man, wrote in Psalm 110 was by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired. And uh, so Jesus knew these things, that the scribes believed that the, the Messiah would be the son of David, and they believe that this particular psalm was about the Messiah. Those are assumptions that Jesus rightly made. But what's the challenge contained in Jesus' question? 
He's challenging his enemies here. He says, how is it the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Because David himself said in the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus' challenge to the scribes is this. Okay, you understand that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. You understand that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah, but you do not understand the meaning of David's words here. Look at the words of the psalm. Now, the Greek in the New Testament doesn't give the full meaning because Lord, in both cases, is the Greek word koreos. So it's the Lord koreos said to my Lord koreos. But in the Hebrew, the words are different. You know that in your English Bibles, whenever you have L-O-R-D capitalized, you see that no matter what your translation, if it's capitalized, it's referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right? Yahweh, the one who is, I am that I am, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, and that word in the Hebrew is Adonai. It's a Hebrew word that the, the Jews often substituted for Yahweh because they had such a reverence for the name Yahweh, they would often substitute a, a name for God that was fairly synonymous the word Yahweh, which points to God's divine authority, dominion, and power. And so what he's saying here is David in the psalm says, Yahweh said to my Lord, my ruler, Adonai. David was calling the Messiah his Lord, his ruler. And then this glorious promise is made by Yahweh to Adonai, to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Yahweh is saying to this David's Lord, the Adonai, the Messiah, that he's going to exalt him to a place of power and authority at his right hand. That's a place of divinity until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So what we have here is a very exalted, glorious sight of David's Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. And this is Jesus' challenge to his enemies here. You scribes rightly recognize that the Christ is going to be the son of David. And you rightly recognize that this psalm and this verse is talking about the Messiah, the Christ. But you haven't come to grips with the glory and majesty of the Christ about which David is speaking here. And so consider the intent of Jesus' question. So Jesus, who has been on the defensive, is going on the offensive here, and he's giving them a challenge. David himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord, Adonai, so in what sense is he his son? What Jesus is aiming to do is to correct the error of the scribes concerning the Messiah. See, the scribes understood that this Messiah, this Christ, was going to be a descendant of David. But they figured he's going to be a lot like David. King David was a, a military conqueror. He conquered God's enemies on behalf of Israel, didn't he? He was a political king. He ruled over the nation. 
And the Jews in that day, as taught by the scribes, were expecting that Jesus or the Messiah would be like David. He would be a political ruler. He would be a military conqueror. And oh, how they wanted that. They were under the pagan Romans and they chafed under that authority and they were longing for a king who would deliver them militarily and politically from the Romans. And so their idea of Messiah was this idea of, of narrow Jewish nationalism. The Messiah is going to come as a human king like David, and he's going to conquer our enemies and rule over us politically like, like David did of old. And Jesus is saying, by citing this verse, no, your view of Messiah is too petty. It is too small. David is, the, the, the Messiah is not going to be a king merely like David. Here is David, a political and a sovereign, and he's bowing before Adonai. He's bowing before the Messiah, calling him Lord, his Adonai, his ruler. And then Yahweh promises to this Messiah that he's going to exalt him to the place of, of his right hand until all his enemies are vanquished. Jesus is saying to his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, that your view of Messiah is too small. He's not going to be a mere earthly king. Can't you see by this description that he is a Messiah of transcendent majesty and glory? He's not simply going to reestablish David's political kingdom, but he's going to rule from the right hand of God. So part of Jesus' intent is to correct their wrong idea about the Messiah. Do you follow that? They thought the son of David is going to be a political messiah, a, a conqueror over our enemies. And Jesus is saying, no, no, get the psalm here. David says, he is my Adonai, he's my Lord, he's my ruler. He's not like me, but he's one who will be exalted to the right hand of God. It's a divine messiah that is being predicted in Psalm 110.1. But Jesus' further intent, not just to correct the scribes, but his further intent is to direct his hearers to himself as the fulfillment of this messianic promise. How did his enemies, the Pharisees and the scribes, view Jesus when it came to his messiahship? Did they think that he was the Christ? He was the son of David? Well, I turn you back for a moment to Matthew 12, beginning of verse 22. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The people were thinking, is, is, is this man the Christ? Is he the son of David? And the Pharisees came and said, he's not the son of David, he's the son of the devil. So the Pharisees and scribes did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the true son of David. But Jesus is here implying that he is the Christ. He is the son of David. And he is a far more majestic, transcendent, glorious person than they had imagined. And when he says here, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said, David is speaking in the psalm, 
Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus is saying, this is fulfilled in me. I am the one who will be exalted to the right hand of God, and I will rule over my enemies, not from earth, but from the right hand of Yahweh. Jesus is facing his death. Within three days, he will be killed. But we see here that Jesus has confidence in the agreement made between himself and his father in eternity past, that if you will die for your people, I will raise you up and I will exalt you and I will restore to you the glory you had with me before the world was. And this would have been a great comfort to Jesus. It also bespeaks Jesus' faith in the father. I know that the father who has sentenced me to death according to the covenant of redemption has also promised to raise me up and exalt me and restore me to the place of authority at his right hand. Even as Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh. And so the words Jesus speaks here bespeaks his trust in the father, that the father who has sentenced him to death will raise him up and exalt him. But I submit to you that's not why Jesus spoke these words to his enemies. Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The scribes and the Pharisees, his enemies, were lost. One of them had just come to Jesus, and Jesus sensed his sincerity. Remember that scribe we saw last week? And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And perhaps Jesus thought, maybe there are others out there, as much as they seem to hate me, maybe there are some others out there who are not far from the kingdom of God. And here is one of the last opportunities Jesus has to speak to his enemies. And what does he do? In his parting words to them, he's facing them with the most important question that they need to answer. What do you think about the Christ? And what do you think about me? Because I am the Christ. You've got this beggarly view of the Messiah that he's going to come as some political conquering king. But I'm showing you that what David meant from that psalm is that the Messiah, the son of David, his descendant who would come, is far more glorious than a political and military ruler. He's a transcendent, glorious, divine being who will be exalted to the Father's right hand and from that vantage point vanquish all of his enemies. That's the the right view of the Christ. And the implication is, and by the way, I am that son of David. I am that Christ. When people have called me the son of David, I did not decline that. I, I accepted that because I am that son of David. I am that Messiah. I am that one whom the Father will exalt to his right hand. And I will conquer all my enemies. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he loves his enemies. He's giving them one last shot at believing him. What do you think about the Christ? And what do you think about me? His enemies had come to him with questions. By what authority are you doing this? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What about the resurrection? And now Jesus faces them with the one question that will determine their eternal destiny. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about me as the Christ? 
He's facing them with his identity. And what does that mean for us, brothers and sisters? It means that the most important question that every one of us will face in life is this. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? Is Jesus the one promised for thousands of years as the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, who would come as the only savior of sinners, who would offer himself to die in the place of guilty sinners and then be raised to life and exalted to the Father's right hand? Is Jesus Christ that one? If you answer yes to that question, it means the forgiveness of all of your sins and eternal life with God. If you answer no to that question, it means in the day of judgment you will receive from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the most important question you will ever ask and answer. Who is Jesus? And it means that if we are to be like Jesus and we love lost sinners, we will face them with that question of his identity. In your witness, with all the things you can talk about, here is the thing we need to face sinners with. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. In John 8, 24, he says, unless you believe that I am Yahweh, that I am equal with God, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus here, shortly before he was to suffer and die, gives his enemies one last chance to recognize him for who he is because he loved even his enemies. And if we love lost sinners, we will make an effort to face them with the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the key question. That's the question that comes down through the centuries. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? And what will you do with him? That determines everyone's eternal destiny. Well, briefly, one more point, the impact of Jesus' question. Matthew tells us he asked this, he, he directed this at the Pharisees, but it's clear that the crowd was listening. Uh, verse 37 ends with, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So he was directing it at his enemies, the scribes and Pharisees, but there was a large crowd listening in. And we're told that they enjoyed listening to him. That word enjoy means it was sweet or pleasant in their ears. They, they enjoyed listening to Jesus. We like to think that as they enjoyed listening to Jesus, that they believed Jesus. But that would be saying too much. Because the same people here in the temple of whom it is said they enjoyed listening to Jesus, many of them a few days later would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so we don't have the confidence that even though they enjoyed listening to him, that they really believed him. It's worth noting that the same word here, they enjoyed listening to him, is the same word used back in Mark chapter 6, of Herod, who enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. Do you remember that? John was in prison, and Herod would bring him up and listen to him, and he enjoyed, same word, listening 
to John. John, Herod knew that John was a righteous man. And there was something attractive about John speaking, something that Herod enjoyed. We don't know what it was, but something captivated Herod about John's preaching. But all it took was for him to get good and drunk, and in order to please his, his dinner guests, to give in to the request of his sensual stepdaughter, and he called for John to be beheaded. So he enjoyed listening to John, but he didn't believe John. You know, the words of Ezekiel apply here in Ezekiel 33, 31, and 32, where the prophet in exile in Babylon, and God comes to the prophet Ezekiel, and he says this, they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. It's possible for people to enjoy listening to sermons. Some people enjoy listening to sermons because of the logic and the orderliness of, of the sermon construction. Other people like listening to pastors preach sometimes because of the passion. There's not a whole lot of passion today. Very few politicians are, are passionate, right? Where are you going to get passion? People who sound like they really believe what they're saying. Well, you get that from preachers. And some people appreciate the passion. Others may appreciate the eloquence. Some men are just eloquent in their use of the language. And people sit there and they enjoy the preaching. You know, Ben Franklin enjoyed the preaching of of uh, George Whitfield. He was a patron of Whitfield. He even marked off how far Whitfield could be heard without any kind of amplification. But Franklin made the statement, Whitfield died at about age 56, and Franklin lived into his 80s. He outlived Whitfield, and Franklin made the statement after Whitfield's death, he never had the joy of seeing me converted. He enjoyed, aesthetically, this man had a mellifluous voice. And he was a powerful, passionate evangelist. And Franklin enjoyed listening to him for years, but was never converted by his preaching. And so I hope there's no one here who enjoys listening to sermons. It's like someone who plays well on an instrument or someone who sings with a beautiful voice. I like listening to sermons, but you don't obey what the preacher is saying. The most important thing is to believe the message. These people enjoyed listening to Jesus, but at least at that point, they did not believe him. I trust it's not true of any of you, but that you will believe, not the mere human preacher, but the one the human preacher is hopefully reflecting and echoing, and that is the capital P preacher, Jesus. And Jesus' messages, message is, I am the son of David, the descendant of David, far greater, not a political military leader. I am the divine Messiah. I'm the divine king who has died for sinners, been raised, exalted to my father's right hand. And from that vantage point, I will conquer all my enemies, but also from that vantage point, I will save. And Jesus is there as an exalted savior 
to condemn you if you reject him, but with open arms ready to save you if you will just cry out and let him be your Messiah, your Christ, your Savior. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing, and then come to the supper. Lord Jesus, we who believe by grace, we crown you King of kings and Lord of lords. You are not a mere reincarnation of David, not a mere political, military king, but you are the divine king who has come, died for us, and been raised to the Father's right hand. And from that vantage point, you have sent forth your spirit to regenerate your people and many of us are counted among them, and we thank you and pray in your name.